Good mornings, I'm Chris Oaks, and coming up today, pro-life advocates this week will take part in the first March for Life of the post-Roe era. But they're not the only ones mobilizing their base. How pro-choice proponents are advocating for access to abortion in a very different environment than they've been used to. Also this morning, the strange case of George Santos. How was the newly elected New York congressman able to keep his lies a secret until it was too late? And why it should matter to all of us. And the Children's Mentoring Connection will host a ribbon cutting and an open house at their new location in the Family Center next week. Executive Director Stacy Shaw explains how the move will allow them to better serve the community. This is the Good Mornings Podcast Edition for Thursday, January 19th, 2023. By the way, you know, we are less than a month away from Valentine's Day now, and the Bronx Zoo in New York City has announced that they are once again bringing back their very popular Name a Roach gift promotion. For 15 bucks, you get to name a Madagascar hissing cockroach <laughs> after uh, your favorite person or your uh, ex-favorite person. Uh, if you want to go all out, 75 bucks will get you a tumbler, a tote bag, and a virtual visit with your roach. Well, it's not your roach. is the roach that you had named. Officials say money raised will go toward uh, improvements at the zoo. So if you uh, have somebody <laughs> in mind, uh, I think we all could probably think of someone uh, that would be appropriate to name a roach after for Valentine's Day. You can do that once again, the uh, Bronx Zoo. Rolling out that promotion, so that, uh, some of the other random things here from the uh, Newswire, among the first things you need to know, the most interesting and buzzworthy stories to uh, start your day. I thought this was kind of interesting. If you have kids, um, take note of this. Uh, researchers at the Universities of Essex and Reading, Reading, I'm sorry, Universities of uh, Essex and Reading, worked jointly on this project to try and uncover what type of educational strategies are most effective among kids. And what they found was that strict-sounding teachers were not as inspiring as compared to nicer educators. And when I first, when I first saw this, my initial reaction was, well, duh, Nobody, when you look back years and years after you're out of school and you look back fondly on the best teachers, when somebody asks you, who's the best teacher, the most inspiring teacher that you ever had, no one immediately thinks of the strictest teacher that they ever had. You always remember the nice teachers. Well, this university study finds that strict-sounding teachers not as inspiring as nicer educators. The study involved hundreds of kids between the ages of 10 and 16, and uh, those with strict teachers were more likely to rebel and less likely to reveal when they had a problem in school. Gentler, more supportive voices encourage a stronger student-teacher relationship. Uh, Students, it said, listened to recordings of 250 teachers and then related uh, and rated how the uh, tone of the voice of the teacher affected them. Uh, Professor Weinstein, uh, who is involved in this uh, study, I guess headed up the study, said teachers can provide a positive learning environment when they are thoughtful in how they use their tone of voice. So, something kind of uh, interesting there. And a related note uh, to that. I would venture to guess, when you talk about uh, strict versus kind teachers, strict versus gentle teachers, um, the other thing that your teacher, I want to keep in mind, teachers also, or kids also know when you're faking it. Uh, this is a separate study from Duke University in which they analyzed 64 kids between the ages of three and five, and their responses to a series of videos where puppets offered to show them a toy, 
but then failed to deliver on that promise. And the puppets then provided a an excuse for why they couldn't deliver on their promise. Uh, like, for example, they said they had to help a friend with their homework, or they wanted to watch TV, or whatever. They came up with an excuse for not following through on a promise that they had made. And what the researchers found was that the these children, as young as three years old, they can tell when you are just using a bad excuse, when you are full of it, when you are... <laughs> The children tended to agree that it was wrong to go back on a promise, but were more understanding when there was a good reason for going back on a promise. A lame excuse was as bad as no excuse at all. And again, these are kids as young as three. Uh, Previous research has suggested that in some cases, young kids will just take any reason to be Better than no reason at all, but here we showed that kids do pay attention to the actual content. So, parents make note, if uh, you are not following through on your promises to your kids, you better have a doggone good excuse. And that relates back to the uh, teachers as well, Um, because by extension, like I said, they can tell if you're just faking it, if you're trying to if you're not really as strict as you try to come across they're very perceptive these kids are studies continue to show that was kind of interesting uh let's see and a couple of other uh, items here speaking of research and uh this i definitely raised an eyebrow for me is research out of uc san diego has found a leak a link between Natural disasters, climate change, and post-traumatic stress. (laughs) As climate change, here's the latest thing now that we got to be concerned with: climate, climate change, and all of these things we got to be concerned about with climate involved in climate change. Apparently, climate change is causing post-traumatic stress. Uh huh. So naturally, when I saw this as the headline, that. climate change tied to post-traumatic stress, I had to read a little bit further. And interesting what I found here in the details of this study. The findings came after studying 725 Californians after wildfires had tore through their neighborhood. Those with direct exposure to the event had greater difficulty processing sensory information quickly and accurately. They also had greater activity in the frontal cortices of their brains, meaning they were using more effort but still not performing as well as the unaffected group, which is similar to what doctors see in cases of PTSD. So the researchers concluded, now this is, this is the thing that gets me, the researchers concluded that climate trauma may affect cognitive and brain functions especially with regard to processing of distractions. Or, or you could just conclude that people were devastated after wildfires burned down everything they owned. I, you, could, you could just draw that simple conclusion. But uh, so it must be climate change. No, it's just the fact that everything that... I, I would imagine that if you... Talked to 725 people who house, whose houses burned down because of an electrical fire or, you know, something like that or what have you, you know, for whatever reason. doesn't have to be, you know, wildfires brought on by climate change. You know, anybody who loses everything is going to have these. I don't know how you can make that leap. What, you know what I mean? I, it's just it seems like that would be the natural reaction you would expect from somebody who had experienced some sort of devastating trauma, like losing everything they had, would probably show signs of that devastation anyway. Uh, But the study author uh, drew the conclusion that as the planet warms, more people may be exposed to climate change-induced trauma. I'll make of that what you will. Again, this is one of those things I think, and I just... This is just me. I'm not a scientist. I'm not an expert in this field. 
But it certainly seems to me this is a piece of research in which the uh, researcher uh, was looking to validate the beliefs they already had rather than drawing a conclusion from the data. And into it with a preconceived notion, preconceived notion, and then try to make the data fit that narrative. But uh, anyway, and uh, finally, I thought this was uh, kind of interesting. In the Commonwealth of Virginia, they are still trying to figure out uh, the whole uh, their whole relationship with the Confederacy uh, thing. They have a love hate relationship with their past. Uh, with respect to the Confederacy and what it stood for and uh, what it uh, means in today's environment and what people make of that uh, in today's environment. People in Virginia are now duking it out when it comes to the license plates in the state uh, that honor Confederate General Robert E. Lee. Um, This is a report from the Virginia Mercury newspaper. One... Delegate, the state legislature is now trying to get rid of the special tags. Well, you know, uh, many states have these special tags. Ohio has them. You can buy uh, special tags for your favorite sports team or university or your favorite cause, uh, so on and so forth. Uh, if you pay a little extra, you get a specially themed license plate outside of the regular issue license plate. Well, one of them in Virginia is honoring Confederate General Robert E. Lee. And now one delegate is trying to get rid of those tags through a new bill. Uh, Data shows that there are currently about 1,500 vehicles with those plates in the state. And uh, now, mind you, officials in uh, Richmond, the state capitol, recently removed the last city-owned statue of Robert E. Lee, and now they're trying to uh, ban the Robert E. Lee license plate because it is, uh, I guess, insensitive, politically incorrect going to be some pushback from that. Uh, still, here we are, 150 years later, trying to figure out our relationship uh, with the uh, Confederacy. Yeah. Kind of interesting stuff there. Some of the uh, most interesting and buzzworthy stories to get your Thursday morning started here. WFIN News, I'm Matt Demchek. Your WTOL 11 weather. Showers and storms are possible today, a high of 56. Showers and possibly a storm tonight, a low of 35. St. Mark's United Methodist Church in Finley will be hosting Night to Shine in February. Associate Pastor Dave Charles says Night to Shine is an unforgettable prom night experience for people with special needs. There's going to be limo rides for everyone. Uh, There's a paparazzi when they come in the door, red carpet greeting. Then throughout the night, they'll eat and have dancing just like a, a normal prom. Night to Shine is sponsored by the Tim Tebow Foundation, and this year is celebrating its ninth anniversary as thousands of people will come together to honor those with disabilities. Get more on the event on our website. Some Ohio lawmakers want to strip the Ohio Department of Education of its power and give that oversight to a new position on the governor's cabinet instead. Opponents of Senate Bill 1 feel that education will now be politicized because the education department will fall under the governor's power. They're also concerned that parents will no longer have an advocate, an elected official on the Ohio Department of Education that will advocate for them like they do now. Supporters of the bill say low test scores in the state need to be addressed, and they say that hasn't happened under the current system. ONN's Kevin Landers reporting. Get more on the website. The Buckeye State now has its largest rainy day fund ever. The Ohio Office of Budget and Management transferred $727 million into the Ohio Budget Stabilization Fund, otherwise known as the Rainy Day Fund, bringing the cash balance to nearly $3.5 billion. This funding reserve represents the largest balance for this fund in state history. Kate Burdett, ONN News. The Hancock Park District will be holding a winter river hike along the Blanchard River in Findlay. The hike will go from Centennial Park to the far overlook deck at Riverside Park and then back. During the approximate two-mile hike, people participating will look for wildlife and learn about the history of ice harvesting along the river and talk about ice safety. The hike will begin at Centennial Park at 2 p.m. on Sunday, January 29th. The walk is free and registration is not required and all ages are welcome. On our website, we have a link where you can learn about other upcoming park programs and events. I'm Matt Demchek for 1330 WFIN and 95.5 FM. Well, as you may know, this week, pro-life advocates will take part in the first March for Life event of the post-Roe era. 
They will be celebrating what they view as advancements in the effort to protect the pre-born and rally supporters to further those efforts on a state-by-state basis. Well, they're not the only ones who are mobilizing support for their cause. On the other side of the abortion debate, pro-choice advocates are also rallying support against what they view as a continued assault on women's reproductive rights. Morgan Hopkins is president of All Above All, a group that describes itself as catalysts for abortion justice. Morgan, first off, what exactly does that mean, catalysts for abortion justice? It means that we uh, work with organizations across the country. We have more than 150 partners, um, and we work to really accelerate the strategies to build a world where abortion is available, accessible for anyone who needs it. So we don't just want legal abortion. We want a world where anyone can access abortion care if and when they need it. Now, in your argument, as part of your argument, you point to the impact of abortion restrictions on marginalized groups, such as communities of color and the poor. What is that impact as you see it? For nearly as long as we had Roe, so almost 50 years, insurmountable restrictions existed, um, including insurance coverage bans and bans on medication abortion that have denied people abortion care. Now, 24 states have banned or are likely to ban abortion, forcing even more travel, more people to travel to another state, sometimes thousands of miles to get care. And we know that that, that type of uh, restriction can really increase the cost. You might need child care. You might need to take days off of work to leave your state to get abortion care. Um, and so we see the ways that that really impacts families' economic security. You do see uh, a you do see some uh, support or some sympathy for those issues uh, in the forms of a number of major employers, which are uh, willing to give uh, employees time off uh, for that purpose um, in the uh, form of fewer restrictions uh, from the federal government, from the White House on uh, medications and so on, to the extent that they have been able to uh, to do that. You do see some. Uh, would you call those victories in in your effort? Yes, absolutely. Uh, we've seen, you know, even city councils, some state legislatures, um, and the Biden administration take important steps to uh, protecting abortion care. Um, and we, you know, we still believe that it shouldn't be dependent on who your employer is or what zip what your zip code is. Um, to determine whether or not you can access an abortion. Fair enough. The pro-life side has framed pro-choice advocates such as yourself as extremists who want unrestricted access to abortion on demand at any point up to and including the moment of birth. Is that really your argument? Zero restrictions under any circumstances? We want people to be able to have the freedom to make the decisions that are best for uh themselves and their families. I think however we feel about abortion, um, the politicians should not be interfering and restricting restricting abortion care. Um, and so, you know, I, um, it's not up to me to judge uh, someone else's decision. And we really believe that this is about the freedom to control our lives. I understand your point. I understand where you're coming from with respect to that argument. But the reason I ask is because that's not really where the general public is uh, on this zero restrictions under any circumstances. I mean, poll after poll uh, does say that the majority of Americans are in favor of some form of legalized abortion, but within certain limits, certain guardrails. And obviously the definition of what those guardrails would be varies. But it seems that most people are not with you on the idea of unrestricted abortion any more than they are with completely prohibiting abortion. So is there some room for discussion and middle ground to be found? We saw in the midterms last fall across the country in states um, with different political makeups that when you put this issue to voters, they across the board uh, they push back against restrictions on abortion care, even some of the uh, restrictions you're referencing um, that are talked about as being middle ground. We see that voters actually don't want that because they understand that only they can decide 
um, what is best for themselves and for their families. So, I, you know, we see, yes, yeah, support for legal abortion. We also see a majority of support um, for affordable abortion care. People understand the, that abortion access is an economic issue. So I think when you really put it to the voters themselves, we see what, where they fall on this issue. So with that in mind, and giving, uh, given all of that, uh, that you just the argument that you just made, what would you like to see from lawmakers at the federal, state, and even local levels with respect to ensuring that that abortion care is available and accessible? We really want lawmakers to think bigger, and we want to see solutions that are bolder than restoring Roe versus Wade so that abortion care is available in the communities where we live. So it's not dependent on someone's zip code or how much money they make. So we really want it to be covered by insurance and available without all of these barriers so that it's affordable and accessible for anyone who needs it. And where do you see that fight uh, likely being most successful for your side at the federal level, at the state level, at the local level, what, or is it a combination of all? It's a combination of all. We've seen um, even local elected officials willing to really take some bold action. We see state legislators across the country, even if they're not in the majority, um, realizing that this is, you know, a really important important issue for years to come and same at the federal level. So we're we're looking at it uh, as comprehensively as possible across the country. As we mentioned, both sides of this debate are mobilizing support for their cause. This is far from a settled matter. Again, Morgan Hopkins is president of All Above All. Where do folks learn more about your advocacy and if they are so inclined, uh, get involved and engage uh, with your organization? Uh, People can go to allaboveall.org and contact your elected officials, let them know Uh, that abortion justice belongs here in your community. It's going to take all of us uh, to ensure that abortion is available and supported for anyone who needs it. So uh, you can follow us on social media as well at All Above All. Morgan, thanks very much for taking the time to uh, come on, share your perspective on this issue. We appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Well, by now you have heard all about the strange story of George Santos, I'm sure, the newly elected congressman from New York's 3rd District, who, as it turns out, lied about nearly everything on his resume and in his personal life. Now, your first thought is probably something along the lines of, why should we care? He's not our representative. But I think this is a story that we all should be concerned with more than it seems we are. And uh, joining us this morning is best-selling author and speaker and expert on ethics and corruption in government, Debbie Peterson. And Debbie, taken individually, some of George Santos's lies would perhaps be damaging, but not damning. Uh, I mean, okay, he didn't work at Goldman Sachs. He didn't attend uh, NYU. But the sheer volume of lies and deception, and now uh, I understand the Washington Post is reporting uh, possible ties to a Russian oligarch. So this just keeps getting bigger and bigger, and it just kind of leaves you wondering, who is this guy and what is he up to? You know, Chris, that has been my experience. Whenever we find someone where there's one thing and you smell a rat, it's not quite right, and you dig a little deeper, and it's not just in Long Island. For me, it was in Grover Beach, California, or San Luis Obispo County, California. You'll find stuff like this, and the more you dig, the worse it gets, and then you know you've got a problem, and it happens everywhere. And you know what's interesting to me, uh, and one of the reasons why we should all be concerned is kind of like what you were saying. When you start to dig, you find more, but that's one of the things that bothers me is it seems like nobody dug, nobody did any digging here, And, and there are a lot of failures along the way. But I put right up at the top the media that prides itself on being a guardian against political corruption really dropped the ball on this one. I mean, he's running in New York. I can't believe that no one picked up the phone to call NYU or Goldman Sachs and verify his resume. 
Absolutely. And I did read some about that in the Observer. And apparently the the Republicans were relying on the Democrats because the Democrats used to always vet the Republican candidates when they sure. were running against them. But the Dems didn't have the money this time. And so they let it slide. And I think you're right. I think it was a whole lot of um, letting it slide. And also I've, I've read reports now that um, there were Republicans who knew what was going on well, and yeah. either walked away and said nothing or stayed involved and said nothing yeah uh that's i i heard that too that there were those within his campaign who could have blown the whistle from what i understand they did some opposition research on their own candidate which is uh not unusual that is often done to kind of get ahead of any surprises that may come out later and then they discovered that he wasn't who he said he was and yet didn't do anything other than encouraging him to step down which obviously he decided uh not to do and they could have gone to higher ups or they could have anonymously gone to the media yes because at the end of the day they've really harmed their own party by allowing this guy to get through it's been a really self-defeating exercise and um absolutely one of the things that bothers me is that a lot of times we will see something like this and we'll walk away or we'll just kind of excuse it. And that is what allows it to continue. So it really is critical that we as citizens report these things, not just as campaign members, but when you see something like this, call the FBI, call, you know, call your district attorney, call your police department, because it's important, because it affects all of us. Well, it, it, that's interesting, because again, while we sit here and we, we point fingers at the media, we point the fingers at the, the party insiders who may or may not have uh, known something uh, or, or should have known something. We also kind of have to point the fingers back at ourselves, hold a mirror up to say, uh, are we really doing everything we can to hold elected uh, uh, people or people who are running for office accountable for what they say and what they claim and what they do? And I'm sure we're not, because at the end of the day, he was elected by voters. So every single voter who cast a vote for him and some who didn't because maybe they knew what was going on, they all have a responsibility to do their own research and also to make sure that the people they're electing um, are straightforward, honest, um, the best possible person they can put in that position to handle the half a million dollars of taxes that each of us pays at, on average yeah. um, over a lifetime. Uh, and now, uh, to be fair, uh, you know, the general public does rely on uh, those with the resources, the wherewithal, and supposedly the expertise to vet these individuals. And we uh, do kind of tend to assume that they've done their job. But again, you look at party leadership, as you were, uh, as you were uh, uh, alluding to earlier, uh, who do have the power to punish or even expel George Santos at this uh, point, but have been unwilling to do so because they feel they can't afford to jeopardize even one seat of their slim majority to a special election. So, uh, again, you, you have people putting partisan politics uh, above what is ethical and moral and right in this case. Absolutely. Yes. And, you know, corruption isn't one party or another party. It's simply corruption. And what's happening with the media, of course, is that they get their resources get slimmer and slimmer. And a lot of times, especially the local newspapers, simply and media, the stations, TV stations, and I'm sure, you know, radio stations simply do not have the budget to do this kind of research. And really, at the end of the day, then it has to come back to us as individuals. And it's something we can do on a local level. So this kind of thing where we know, but we don't say, or we know, but we don't vote, we know, but we don't report, or we don't know because we don't pay attention, it does fall back on us at the citizens because we're the ones who pay for it. And and so you take all of these failures, uh, failures upon failures, and, and to me, it seems to be a clear picture that something like this could happen in any congressional district anywhere. Uh, I mean, if this happened in the largest media market of New York, it certainly could happen anywhere. And it just seems as though there is nothing to prevent the next George Santos and the next one and the next one and so on. 
Well, there is something, and that's you and me and all the rest of the people out there who are voters or not voters. Anybody who's here has a responsibility. And yes, it happens in small towns. It happened in my community. We were, I think, number one in California, number two in the country for real estate loan fraud. So the same kind of thing Hmm. that the company that George Santos worked for is being accused of that kind of Ponzi type of scheme happened on a very small scale in my community. And hundreds of retirees lost their retirements with two different individuals who were operating a Ponzi-type scheme. So, yes, at the end of the day, still, it can happen in your little town, and it can happen the same thing that happens on a big scale internationally, like with George Santos and what appear to be his connections, happens, it happens in your own community, Mm. too, if you're not paying attention. Mm. Boy, scary stuff, really, when you uh, start to think about it in that uh, broader sense. Again, uh, Debbie Peterson is a uh, best-selling author, speaker, and expert on ethics and corruption in government. Uh, You have, really quickly, a a website where folks can learn more about your books on the subject and uh, more of your writings and so on. Where do we find that? That is DebbiePeterson.com, and the book Happiest Corruption and City Council 101, both are available on Amazon. Debbie, thanks very much for taking the time. We appreciate it. Thank you. Nice to talk to you today. We interrupt this program to bring you a broken news alert. And where is my broken news? Here it is. <laughs> I've got it here. Uh, let's see. A railroad worker in Cochrane, Georgia, uh, is being hailed as something of a hero after he rescued a raccoon from an unusual predicament. The animal was frozen to the railroad tracks by the hair on his privates. (laughs) Talk talk about an unfortunate situation. Uh, Neil Mullis uh, came across the poor creature on a freezing night back in December and uh, discovered that he was not just resting on the tracks, he was actually stuck to the tracks by his hair on his uh, raccoon's nether regions. He couldn't just leave him there because if he didn't do anything, the uh, raccoon would get run over by a train. So he and a co-worker decided to spring into action. They used hot water to uh, melt the ice and a shovel to gently free the raccoon uh, completely intact, I guess we should mention that. <laughs> After about five minutes of slowly working uh, to uh, to get the uh, raccoon loose, uh, he was set free. He jumped off the rail and ran into the woods, never looking back. He probably told all of his raccoon friends, you're not going to believe what happened to me! It is unclear exactly how the raccoon found himself in that predicament to begin with. All right, uh, so there's that story, the uh, broken news. Um, how about this? Um, in Inglewood, California, uh, two individuals, male and female, are both behind bars after a car chase on the 405 freeway. Uh, the <laughs> During the course of the chase, the driver called 911 uh, to tell deputies to back off. He said he claimed that someone in the car was having a medical emergency and he was just trying to get to the hospital. But uh, eventually, when they caught up with him, they they, uh, arrested him for DUI. Um, And when they finally pulled the guy over, he walked out of the car. He got out of the car holding a French bulldog, which, as it turns out, had been reported stolen. That's a whole weird story all the way around the California Highway Patrol. Uh, they're in uh, the Inglewood and Hawthorne area of California. Not to be outdone, police in Boone, North Carolina, uh, were involved in a chase the other day. This a low-speed chase, which topped out at no more than 20 miles an hour. 
Police responded to a call of a man erratically driving a John Deere tractor and trying to strike pedestrians. He was actually going after pedestrians. The uh, tractor did manage to make a meal out of some cars and also pushed a dumpster into a building. Police and the local sheriff's office teamed up to take down 43-year-old Ronnie K. Hicks in an ultra-slow pursuit. Believe it or not, this low-speed chase, maximum speeds 20 miles an hour, uh, went on for over an hour and only ended when police managed to get all four tires uh, to... uh, they, they blew out all four tires with stop sticks. Um, Mr. Hicks eventually barreled out of his getaway vehicle and brandished a knife at responding officers. Uh, he was met with a taser. Uh, Mr. Hicks is accused of causing thousands of dollars worth of damage and faces a multitude of charges, including two felonies for evading arrest and assault with a deadly weapon. He was charged with three misdemeanors of driving under the influence, reckless driving, and resisting a wet arrest, and... Just to just to add even more to the story, Mr. Hicks will probably face more charges in the future because, as it turns out, the tractor was stolen. <laughs> so it's like he woke up one morning and he decided how much, he asked himself, how much trouble can I get into today? I want to see how much trouble I can get into in a single day. My goodness. Um... Apparently, toilet paper is a hot commodity again. You remember back at the height of the pandemic when toilet paper was a really hot commodity? Well, it is, again, apparently, thieves in Youngstown, Ohio, uh, have uh, been searching out uh, toilet paper. Apparently, uh, thieves broke into, uh, thieves are breaking into buildings to steal toilet paper. Their latest victim happened to be a daycare center. That was robbed around 8, uh, 8, 10 p.m. on Tuesday. Someone uh, with keys to the building rushed in to check the alarm that was going off. And when police arrived, the employee informed officers that uh, the bathroom had been raided. It is unknown just how much toilet paper uh, was missing. Apparently, the perpetrator might have been caught on surveillance video during this and other burglaries, so a detective has been assigned to the toilet paper caper. (laughs) Just going after toilet paper, that's... All right. Apparently that's a big thing again. Speaking of uh, unusual thefts, police in Denver uh, say two pigs were stolen from the National Western Stock Show earlier this week. Uh, fortunately, they have now been located. Two teenagers were set to present the pigs at the stock show until the animals and the truck and trailer holding them turned up missing from a Denver area hotel. Cops say the property was recovered in Commerce City early yesterday. Uh, Commerce City, a suburb of Denver. Uh, there have been no arrests in the case as of yet. Both pigs uh, were apparently found healthy and uh, they were able to be shown at the stock show as scheduled yesterday. So all's well that ends well. It is unclear whether the uh, thieves were after the pigs or the truck and trailer that were hauling them. And finally, in the broken news report, uh, a Florida man is in trouble with the law. We always have to have something out of Florida. This in Leesburg, Florida, Employees at a Bank of America uh, observed a a man, uh, Del Michael Scotty, yelling at an ATM machine. He was yelling at the ATM machine. Apparently, the machine had eaten his card. Has that ever happened to you? Or the machine won't give you your card back? Uh, Mr. Scotty observed not only yelling at the ATM but he decided to get his card back by any means necessary, taking out a hammer from his pickup truck and proceeding to beat the machine into submission. (laughs) Did he not realize that there is a uh, a camera on the ATM machine that is recording everything? Uh, Bank employees provided the footage to the cops, who later later identified Mr. Scotty and uh, dropped by his home. Uh, Mr. Scotty's defense was... 
<laughs> well, he said, as soon as the cops showed up, he said, you must be here because of the ATM. <laughs> he knew it. He knew it. Uh, he was uh, charged with criminal mischief. And there you go. <laughs> that is today's broken news report. We now return you to your regularly scheduled programming. And yet another major brand just announced it's halting all social media advertising. The two most overused and abused words in advertising are truth and trust. They are the two most precious commodities for all brands, big and small. As an advertiser, you have to trust your partners to protect your brand's truth using the media consumer's trust. Radio, it's on. This message provided by WFIN. And now your daily download, the numbers behind the news and the statistics that shape our lives. You remember yesterday we were talking about the results of that six-month experiment uh, with a four-day work week. Companies all over the world uh, participated in this and found that, uh, yes, productivity uh, was uh, just the same, if not greater, when uh, workers had a four-day work week and and it led to greater workplace satisfaction, so on and so forth. So thinking maybe uh, this might become the norm at some point in the future. Well, to expand on that, uh, is it really worth working from 9 a.m. to 5 p.m. every single day? A new survey finds that office workers are at their most productive by 10.22 a.m. each morning. 10.22 is the sweet spot. And then they start to slump by 1.27 p.m. This is a study of 2,000 employees uh, looking at the ups and downs that the typical person goes through during the work day. The afternoon gets progressively worse for many employees who begin to slump by 1.27, then hit another lull at 2.06 p.m. The poll finds 58% struggle to get through the day without feeling the highs and lows of their productivity levels, which I guess is not really a big surprise. You're not going to be at peak productivity for eight straight hours. Uh, Spending too much time in front of a computer was the main reason people don't feel constantly energized at work. 27% said spending too much time in front of a computer just saps their energy. Uh, 24% cite being interrupted by colleagues in the office. Again, something that we didn't have to worry about when we were working remotely so much. Um, 22% say not taking enough breaks away from their desk or their cubicle or their workstation. Um, Not being, uh, not uh, allowing for enough breaks in the workday is uh, what saps their energy. So things that we can do to boost our productivity throughout the day. So the Children's Mentoring Connection is moving into new digs. They're going to be hosting a a ribbon-cutting and open house at their new location in the Family Center next week. Stacey Shaw and Suzanne Crouch joining us from uh, CMC this morning and uh, ladies first of all thanks very much for uh, dropping by especially i know uh, things probably been uh, rather busy for uh, you folks over the uh, past uh, week or so or a couple of weeks yeah the last few weeks we've been getting in moved in and getting settled you know yeah. over the holidays and all of that kind of stuff <laughs> perfect so, time to move yes it's a perfect perfect time, time yes. to move. but mother nature was very kind so we didn't have a lot of that to deal with during our move yeah. so we were happy about that um and we were talking a little bit before we went on the air it's like anything when you when you move move uh there's years and years of stuff uh that that has to be moved probably more than you realize nearly 50 years of records so yeah (laughs) that's a lot of stuff so getting all settled in at the uh, family center what precipitated this move talk a little bit about the decision uh to to make this move Sure. So it was a tough move for us. We've been in the little red house for, for many, many years. Oh, yeah. Um, not not the entire almost 50 years, but a very long time that we were there. Mm-hmm. Um, but like any old house, um, it starts to get a little cranky. Um, and so as a board, you know, we kind of looked at 
what was the best option to do weighing, um, you know, some repairs that needed to be done or if that was time to kind of find a new location. So we opted for that new location. And the family center seems to be a good fit for a number of reasons. Right. So we have an overlap of a lot of our clients that use our services who also use services out there. So, you know, the Kaufman Clinic as, as an example, or even WIC and some of those other things. Mm-hmm. So we have, um, so our clients are sharing those spaces as well. So, um, you know, the hope is maybe that makes it a little easier if they're stopping by or asking questions or even really for um, families that don't know about us. So they might be already there doing another service and um, realize who we are and what we what we do to help those kids um, ages 6 to 14. The flip side is also uh, true that uh, if one of your clients could benefit from some of the other services that are available, um, agencies at the Family Center, really easy to make those referrals and mm-hmm. make those connections. Right, absolutely. And we've been great community partners with a lot of those agencies for many years. Um, but now we can make um, literally that worn handoff and just kind of walk somebody down the hall and, and introduce them to, you know, if it's something maybe even cancer patient services, they need some help with a family member or something, you know, we can walk in and talk to Carol and kind of help that um, transition. And not to go too far afield on on this, but that really was kind of the idea of the Family Center from the very beginning. I mean, this is exactly the the sort of uh, symbiotic relationship uh, that they hope to uh, foster with the development of the Family Center. Right. Absolutely. And um, everybody out there has been, you know, great in their partnerships. And, you know, we walked around and, and, and talked with everybody. But, you know, there's a lot of stuff that we've done together, you know, over the years. And one thing that we really um, strive to get our mentors and mentees as matches to do is that sense of community service as well. So, um, you know, so that's just more opportunities for that. So maybe they um, help out and do some volunteer time at the Chopin, um, Chopin Hall or something like that as well. Um, lower overhead, a uh, big benefit? Um, not exactly for us for some okay. of the ways that we had it, but, uh, okay. you know, obviously we, you know, we had the sale of the house with that, which was something that we did own. Yeah. Um, so, and the reason I bring that up is, uh, because, and again, to, just to kind of go off on a bit of a tangent here is a bit of a sidebar. You do have a, a big uh, fundraiser coming up. here. We do have a big, on. yes, absolutely. <laughs> we do have a big fundraiser coming up. So our services, we don't charge anything to our families. Right. Um, we don't charge anything to the schools that we work with. So it really is imperative. Um, that we are successful with our fundraisers. And we have been blessed for many years um, with our fundraisers in the community that people year after year um, come out and support us. Um, excuse me, many of them take pride in being able to come back year after year. Yeah, so I uh, just put an early uh, plug out there for uh, Bowling for Kids, which is right oh, around the corner. 40th annual. 40th, 40th annual. Wow. 40th. 40th. Yes, you don't hear that very often when it no. comes to fundraising. A 40th yeah. annual. Um, so we're really excited. It is April 22nd and 23rd, okay. um, and it will be at the bowling alley here in Finley, mm-hmm. AMF Sportsman Lanes. And um, even if you didn't want to do in-person bowling, you can do disc golf at Riverbend the month of April, or cornhole or lawn bowling. At, yeah, over the past couple of years, yeah. kind of expanded this. Yeah, uh, so there's bit, m- so. many, many options, and registration's open. Okay, so the registration yes. is open now because that was going to be my next question, when registration opens and it is actually open now. It is now. live. So when people come out to the uh, open house and the ribbon cutting, they mm-hmm. can learn more about that. Yes. And maybe Let's sign up bowling. right there. There yes. you go. Uh, so give us all of the details on the event, the uh, open house, uh, the ribbon cutting, the formal rib- ribbon cutting. Although you're you're actually operating out of that office mm-hmm. now, yeah. Yes, so. we've, we've been there. Um, you know, so this is kind of that that official the part, official, the formal, we, yeah, the formal part because of the holidays and everything. We right. moved around that November time frame, but which is um, again the perfect time to do this. right, exactly. <laughs> so this was, and we're also doing it in conjunction with um, January is National Mentoring Month. Yeah. So to really highlight that and. So, yes, so it's going to be from 2 to 4.30. Um, we will be having our ribbon cutting right around 2 o'clock. We'll have some refreshments there. And it really is a great way to just um, stop by and learn a little bit more about what we do. And, you know, maybe you even have a neighbor or somebody that you know that maybe their child could benefit or you might be interested in mentoring as well. So so that is all on Monday. And talk a little bit about the opportunities that are there. And, again, people can learn more about that at the open house on Monday. But kind of give us an overview well, if you've ever thought about mentoring, now's the time. It's a it's a great time to get involved. And, you know, we have everything from the one-on-one traditional community mentoring um, to school-based mentoring, which is once a week in the schools. It's planned out same time every week. 
um, or our PALS program, which are the kiddos who are waiting to be matched. Mm-hmm. Um, we we um, pro- do programming for them um, twice a month, and you can come as your schedule allows and interact with them. Um, so there's many different facets that can fit your schedule. And I, I know um, when we talk about the uh, one-on-one, uh, the traditional type mm-hmm. of, uh, of mentoring, there are a number of families that kind of sure. uh, you know mentor together sure. almost uh, there's- with it. There's couples mentoring. There's family mentoring. Yeah. Um, if you you know want to make it part of your family event and have your mentee come come along, I mean yeah. that's that's definitely an opportunity. All different types of opportunities and ways that you can make this happen, and it really does make a difference in the life of this young person. Right. It's really about um, you know at somebody lending that extra listening ear um, and to help them find opportunities. So as you're talking with a child um, and maybe they express opportunities in, you know, in cars or something like that, like we've gone out to um, La Rich and had a tour of the, of the building to, okay. to learn about how to do that. So sure. because we have been here for so long, we have a lot of really good community partners and connections with that. And also um, as a volunteer, you're not alone. So you're not out there trying to figure all of this out by yourself. Uh, We have activities that we offer at least twice a month. Um, One of the things that we have coming up that we're super excited about is a trip to see a Cavs game. So on March 4th, we're going to be loading up a bus and headed to see that. So that's the first time that we've done that. Um, And we'll be doing that with other mentoring agencies across the state. So um, that's going to be a really fun event. And we're also going to be, when I talk about opportunities, one of the things with this trip is we're going to be meeting with the back office staff. So not everybody can be an NBA player, but maybe if you're interested in graphic Hmm. arts, you could still work for the Cavs. Maybe if you're interested in hospitality, you Hmm. could still work with the Cavs. So we're going to have people from those different backgrounds. So when we are planning events like that, we're really mindful about all of those things that go in together with that and being able for this to be able to partner with other mentoring agencies and kind of learn from each other and and, uh, really highlight that at a Cavs game. Uh, is something we're really looking forward to. So again, the uh, open house ribbon cutting happening on Monday. And uh, again, January being a mentoring month, a great opportunity to learn more about the opportunities that are available here within the community. Give us the uh, times again. It's 2 to 4.30. Okay. Stop by any time there. Third to four, 2 to 4.30 at the Family Center, Absolutely. the uh, new location there. Uh Again, uh, Stacey Shaw, Suzanne Crouch with the uh, Children's Mentoring Connection with us this morning. Thanks very much for dropping by. We appreciate it. Thank you. Congratulations on the new dig. Thank you. And that will finish up our podcast for today. Thanks to all of our guests for joining us on the program this morning. And remember, you can get more information about all of the topics that we talk about each and every day on the show at our webpage, that, of course, goodmornings.net. Coming up tomorrow on the program, we'll speak with Representative Bob Latta about his support for the March for Life. Plus, the OHSAA is getting involved in eSports. We'll have more details, and we'll preview another weekend of high school basketball action as well. Until tomorrow morning, that is Good Mornings for this morning. Now that you've had a good morning, go on out and make it a good day. We'll catch you back here tomorrow.